How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone an opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to uh, focus on the teaching this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful we can be here this evening to focus on your word, to be reminded of the eternal truths of your word that um, strengthen our spiritual life, encourage us, and provide a basis for our spiritual growth, our spiritual advance, teaching us how we are to uh, live our spiritual life, how we are to relate to you and what you have provided for us, that no matter what we face in life, no matter what the opposition may be, no matter what the struggles may be, we know that you are the God who is greater than everything because you are the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and that there is nothing too difficult for you. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us this evening in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 4, and we've gotten down to verse 29. We're studying this tremendous prayer of the uh, apostles following the arrest of Peter and John, their interrogation by, uh, by the Sanhedrin and their release by the Sanhedrin. And then they, we saw that they came back to the other disciples where they gave a report of what had happened. And once they had told everything that had happened, which emphasizes the importance of getting all the facts before you pray, not just jumping into prayer or having an emotional response, then they put together, they thought through a prayer. And we've looked at some of the elements here, but I want to stop and think a minute about the importance of prayer. We don't always emphasize it as much as we should, that prayer is to characterize everything in our life. Uh, we have promises and commands like uh, Colossians 4.2 that we are to devote ourselves to prayer, which means we are to make it a priority that is consistent. It's a habit pattern. It is something that we uh, have to do to overcome a lot of distractions and a lot of uh, things that come into our lives to interfere with prayer. So we have to make that a point. First uh, Thessalonians 5.17 says that we're to pray continuously, pray, uh, pray without ceasing. And I define prayer this way in terms of prayer for the believer in the church age, that prayer is a grace provision for every member of the royal family of God. It is part of our royal priesthood. As Christians in the church age, every believer is a priest to God. Every believer has direct access to God because Jesus Christ as our high priest makes it possible for us to come boldly before the throne, uh, the th- throne of grace. So we all have that privilege to bring our petitions, our requests to God at any moment without going through an intermediate priesthood. And the purpose of the communication is, um, I've listed five here, 
to acknowledge sin, that relates to confession, to express adoration and praise to God. This can be anything from just a, a rehearsal of his attributes and how they have impressed you, uh, to things that God, ways in which God has answered prayer, uh, giving thanks, uh, focusing on our gratitude to God for what he has provided us, what he has, uh, uh, done in terms of answer of prayer and how he has worked in our lives, uh, interceding for others. I combined the last two under the idea of uh, supplication, but it's interceding for others and then praying on behalf of our own personal needs. Now, I've used the, I've used the uh, acronym of CATS, C-A-T-S, to think through the four basic types of prayer because sometimes we think that, I remember learning this when I was about maybe third grade, second grade, these four parts to prayer, thinking, oh, I have to do all four of these every time. And no, these are four, four basic components of prayer. Any one can be the prayer in and of itself. We can have just a prayer of confession. You can have a prayer just of thanksgiving. There are many thanksgiving psalms. There can be just a prayer of, of, uh, supplication where we're just praying for others, or it may be just a prayer of petition. We may be in a bind and think that uh, and go to the Lord in prayer for deliverance in a particular situation. In the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms and over, I think over 70, I think it's 71, which is almost half of the 150 Psalms are classified as lament Psalms. And a lament psalm is really a literary category, but it's basically a petition where the psalmist is in, in a problem. He's going through some kind of adversity, and he is calling upon God in terms of his, his lament, expressing the problem in his life, and focusing upon uh, the character and the promises and the provision of God. He expresses his uh, call to God, his petition to God to intervene in his life in a particular way, and then he usually concludes with a praise to God for what God will do in terms of answering his prayer. I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to note that almost half the Psalms fall into that category. That's why when we read the Psalms so many times, there's a, a universal aspect, even though these are in many cases grounded in specific incident, incidences in David's life or in the life of the psalmist, whoever it might be, they have a universal quality where that their circumstance relates to our circumstance, and so we we can apply them to whatever adversity that we seem to be uh, we seem to be going through. In our prayer that we're studying here that begins in verse 20, uh, 24 and extends through verse 30, this is primarily a petition prayer. It is a, a prayer, a petition for God to strengthen them in terms of the mission that God has assigned them in light of the adversity and opposition that they are experiencing. So there is not a, an expression of thanksgiving here. There is uh, not an expression of, of confession of sin here. There is an expression of orientation to God in terms of, of his character in the opening address. 
uh, expressing it in terms of the sovereign authority of God over everything in creation. Lord, you are God who made heaven and, the, and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And as we saw in our uh, opening, this is a, a passage that comes out of Psalm 96 and specifically relates to one particular verse uh, in there that <clears throat> that is tied to the character of God, but specifically God as creator. Excuse me, I said Psalm 96, I meant Psalm, uh, um, Psalm 146. Um, and, acts, and it focuses on specifically verse 6, God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But then the next verse talks about the fact that God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, which is where they are. So they, they're not just quoting Psalm 146.6 because it sounds good or because they've heard it before or because this is a nice way to address God at the beginning of a prayer. But they are, they're, they're pulling out of a, a particular psalm that it deals within the psalm with the problems that they're facing in terms of uh, a government authority that has run amok. That's mentioned in verse, I think it's verse 3 or 4, that do not put our trust in princes, but in God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, that he executes justice for the oppressed, and he gives freedom to the prisoners, and that's they had just recently been freed from prison. And then we saw that in... Um, Acts uh, 25, 425, and 26, they pull a quote from Psalm 2. Last time, we studied through Psalm 2, looking at the uh, quote there, why did the Gentiles rage or why did the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing or futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or his Messiah. And the point of this is focusing on the fact that in their argument, as they're setting up, and by argument I mean they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're laying a foundation to, for their appeal to God to intervene in their life in a certain way. So they start off by saying, God, remember, you're the God who made everything, so you're the ultimate authority, and we're appeal, appealing to you. You execute justice for the oppressed. You free the prisoners. And then the next plank in the development of their of their thought is to say, God, you were the one who who told us that that ulti- that we're in a battle, and ultimately the battle will will end. But the character of the battle throughout history is that the kings of the earth will be will gather against you. There will always be this battle between human authority that is independent of you seeking to control and dominate history. And this ultimately focuses in hostility against you and your Messiah, and that ultimately there you will have victory. But what we're experiencing here by application is part of that battle. And we know that that battle is never going to cease until you return. And so in verses 25 and 26, there is a focus on that principle in Psalm uh, 2, uh, 1 and 2, which comes out of those psalms. So they're quoting the psalm to emphasize to God that his revealed will is to put down the attack of secular powers against the Messiah. 
Now, notice I said that they're praying in terms of what God's revealed will is. A lot of times we don't know what God's revealed will is. We're to pray according to his will, but we don't know what that is. So in many cases, we can't pray with as much certainty as they do here because here they're praying in terms of of a two specific promises that God has made, one here in Psalm 2, uh, really a principle that God's laid down that, that his revealed will is to defeat the secular powers that are arrayed against him. And so this reinforces for them in terms of their own sense of confidence, which is a major term you'll see in verse um, 29, that they're going to pray that God will give them boldness. And then, and this word in the New King James is boldness in verse 29, boldness in 31, which is uh, many translations will translate one of those one way and one another way, but they're the same word in the Greek. So confidence is a major part of, of their petition, that as they face opposition, as they face hostility, that they will have confidence and boldness to fulfill the mission that God has given them. As they state their petition in verse 26, which is a quote from Psalm 2-2, the the original psalm mentioned that the rulers would gather together against the Lord, that is, against Yahweh, God the Father, and against his Mashiach, the Anointed One. And their application is stated in verse 27. They say, for truly... Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's that, that's that word for Messiah. It's Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's Creo is the verb to anoint. Christos is the noun for the for an anointed one. Uh, this is the one whom you God anointed Jesus the Messiah. So that word is is borrowed from Psalm two two. And they say both Herod and Pontius Pilate representing the kings of the earth and rulers who, who are, they say, with the, the Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and people of Israel were gathered together. So they're taking uh, two or three concepts out of Psalm 2, 2, and specifically weaving that verbiage into their uh, their, their argument, their, their appeal to God. They're laying a foundation so that they're, they're building a case for, for their petition and why God should answer their prayer. I've always found that fascinating in, in some of these prayers in Scripture, how they're, they're not just offering a willy-nilly prayer to God. Oh, Lord, would you please do something about this? But then you read the Psalms, you read how the, the psalmist and, and the apostles craft their prayers. They, they create a rationale for their appeal to God and why he should intervene the way they're asking him to intervene. They, they create a biblical case for his intervention based on his word, based on promises. So that when we get into passages like uh, in 1 John 5 talking about we know that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is how we know his will is if we can articulate our petition in terms of the promises and procedures that God's laid down in his word so that we're basically coming to God using these, these passages from Scripture 
correctly within their context, applying them correctly, and creating this kind of an appeal that God would be honored and glorified. And then we come to uh, verse 28, that they are asking him that he would... um, and, and it's, there's this, he said, for truly against your holy servant, and the, 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 these Gentile powers, rulers, have gathered together uh, to do. Notice, they gather together in opposition. This is the um, paradox of this verse. On the one hand, you have these human rulers who are antagonistic to God, and they've gathered together to oppose God, exercising their volition freely to oppose God, And yet, what it is that they are doing actually is God's plan. Because they are gathered together to do, verse 28, whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now, this is an interesting verse to stop and pause and take a look at for just a minute. When Throughout the scriptures, we often have the use of a metaphor for the power of God. Well, the scriptures talk about the arm of God or the hand of God. And it is with our arm or a hand that we do things. And so the arm or hand of God is usually a metaphor for God utilizing his power to intervene in human history. It's an anthropomorphism, which means that it's using a human uh, an aspect of human anatomy, human form, to relate something about God's character or his attributes. It doesn't mean God has an arm or a hand or a nose or an eye or an ear, but it, 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 it is using the figure of speech as a way of expressing some concept about his plan or his purpose or his or his character, or his essence. So whenever we see something to the effect of to do whatever your hand uh, intends, then we can uh, paraphrase that and saying to do whatever your power or whatever your will wishes to accomplish. That's, that's the idea. And then the second part of this is to do whatever your purpose predestined to occur. Now, whenever we have the word predestined, immediately... If something happens to people's brains, they, they, they just have some sort of a spiritual seizure and they either go off in one direction or they go off in another direction and immediately you start having all kinds of problems. Because the English word predestined has come to communicate something related to something more in the order of fatalism, that there is a certain... Uh, course of action that has been set forth th- that you cannot deviate from uh, in the plan of God. And that really isn't what the word indicates in Scripture or in the original meaning of the, of the English. If we just break down the English word predestined, it, it, you have a prefix pre, which means beforehand, and a word destined, which has to do with a destiny or a goal or an objective. So in the basic meaning of the word predestined, it's merely to set, to establish, or to set, set forth a goal or an objective ahead of time. You do that every morning. You sit down, you make a to-do list for the day. You have predestined your day. 
You never thought about it that way, did you? You have set aside what you want your goals to be, your destiny to be for that day, what you want to accomplish for that day. You've assigned certain roles, perhaps, to certain people. Maybe uh, the house, house cleaner is going to come and clean the house, or maybe uh, the landscaper is going to come, or the uh, guy who mows the yard is going to come, or you're going to have a meeting with a doctor, and you've assigned different people different roles that they're going to fulfill during the course of your day. That is really, the that captures the idea of the Greek word uh, prahorizo, which is uh, translated into English as predestined. So this is the Greek word prahorizo, which means to decide upon a course of action ahead of time or a prior appointment to appoint something to a position beforehand. That's the basic idea of the word. So let's break it down a little bit and have a little clarification on predestination. First of all, let's look at the basic meaning of this word praharizo. It's a verb, and it's a rare word. It's used six times, including this instance, six times in the New Testament. It's used once in Acts, and praharizo is used five other times, all by Paul in the New Testament. Nobody else uses the word. So it's a rare word. Now, when you only have five instances of a word, it's really difficult to nail down the specifics of the meaning of a word. Usually you have words that are where you have examples of them being used in 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 contexts, and that gives you a, a real uh, definable markers as to the range of meaning within that word. But when a word's only used two or three or four times, then you really don't have enough context to, to define it. Not only is it only used five or six times total in the New Testament, this word is only used one time in classical Greek literature that we know of prior to the New Testament, and that was in the 4th century B.C., so that's 400 years prior to the writing of the New Testament. Now, just think about this. We live in 2011, 400, year, 400 years ago was 1611. 400 years ago, they completed the translation of the King James Bible. This was the 400th anniversary. Just think how many English words in the King James Bible changed meaning between 1611 and now. Just you look at a a King James Bible. In fact, most of you don't realize it, but the King James Bible, the authorized version of 1911 that you go buy at the store today, has really been modified a lot from its original. Uh, they they modified it a couple of times in the in the 1600s and a couple of times in the 1700s just to sort of update the the spelling and as English sort of solidified a little more during that time, they they modernized it even then. So it's very rare that somebody even has a, an actual uh, King James 1611 translation as it appeared in the English in 1611. But you had words like chastity for love. I mean, not chastity, charity. Charity for love in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, charity has a totally different meaning today than it did in 1611. In 1611, the idea of charity had to do with being gracious and kind to people in terms of love, which is the idea that's expressed there by agape in 1 Corinthians 13. But, but, but charity today has to do more with um, 
501c3 organizations that are taking care in hospitals and uh, maybe uh, uh, taking care of abused children, things of that nature. Those are, you know, medical relate, medically related things. Those are charities. So there's a, the words have changed a lot in their meaning. In 1611, when they translated the, the English Bible, it was heavily dependent on previous English translations, going back not only to Tyndale in the, uh, I think it was in about 1540, 1530, Tyndale translation came out. A huge percentage of the words that are used in, in the uh, King James 1611 translation were the same words used by, by Tyndale just 60 or 70 years earlier. But that relates to all the A's and the ands and the D's and the buts and the, you know, the small words of prepositions. But it's a still a fairly sizable, uh, sizable percentage. Tyndale was dependent to some degree upon Wycliffe and some earlier, a couple of earlier translations, even going back to Alfred the Great. And if any of you studied English history, which is a wonderful study, study English history, one of the things you probably never learned in, uh, in studying English history, I had a great English history teacher in high school, had that for an elective. He was a, he was a clown. And this, he had blown off his, 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 I think it was his right hand, in a chemistry accident when he was in college. And he had more fun with that stump. He had a crazy sense of humor, just really macabre. And, um, but he made the study of history fun. But I never learned from him that Alfred the Great was a tremendous Christian, that he translated the Psalms from Hebrew into English, and he translated much of the New Testament into English, into 9th century A.D., uh, er, I guess that would be early uh, or Middle English. Uh, very, we, we couldn't read it and understand it today, but that was one of the earliest translations into English. But, but words changed their meaning. And so at, at that time in the 9th century, who's the, where, where's the seat of learning? It's in the... Church schools, the cathedral schools, which is where the universities developed around the main cathedrals in places like um, like Paris and London and um, Oxford, places of that nature. And so as they developed the cathedral schools, what was the language of the university? Latin. And so in the Latin Vulgate, the word that was used to translate Praharizo was predestio and our predestino, and this shaped the English translation, but it really doesn't quite capture the nuance of of the Greek words. So, if you're going to do a correct word study, technical word study of anything, especially a word that's not used very much in the New Testament, you have to look at related words, words that are cognates like horizon, see. Praharidzain, the root verb is haridzain or haridza with the pra prefix set up with it, or aphoridzain with apo, the preposition apa, uh, set up as the prefix. And uh, so you have to study those words, which are used a little more often uh, in the New Testament. And so the root idea seems to have the idea of appointing someone to something, to do something ahead of time. Now, what's another word that I've already mentioned this evening that relates to this idea of appointing someone to a task? Messiah, Mashiach. 
It's the anointed one, the idea that they're anointed or appointed for a particular position. So uh, this this uh, comes to play uh, as an idea. So the idea of destiny in terms often is shaded too much like fatalism in English, so that's not the be- really the best word. Another way in which you go about defining a word is you look at how the word is used in, in non-biblical texts. In a lot of cases, there's a rich history to these words, going back to classical Greek, 5th century B.C. But again, as I pointed out, words changed a lot in their meanings between the time that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle used them and the time the Apostle Paul used them. And the Apostle Paul's frame of reference wasn't Athens, it was Sinai. It was the Old Testament. So he was using Greek words, but not necessarily with the meanings that uh, excuse me <clears throat> not necessarily with the not necessarily with the meanings that um, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato had but with the meanings that Moses Joshua Isaiah Jeremiah had but when we look at this word, we, ha- we don't have any usage in the Old Testament. It's not used in the Septuagint at all. No reference. It's used one time by Demosthenes in the 4th century B.C., and he writes in the context of a court case in which Demosthenes was trying to recover in court a house that he had inherited but had been fraudulently taken from him by a man named Onator, who was uh, attempting to uh, steal this house from him. And so in court, Demosthenes wrote, to prove that these statements of mine are true, that he, that is Onator, even now declares that the land is mortgaged for a talent, but that he laid claim, and that's Praharizo. He laid claim to 2,000 drachma more on the house. Now, the <clears throat> question we ought to ask is, well, what does laying claim on something have to do with predestination? We look at a well-known passage, such as Romans uh, 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also laid claim to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, it gives you a whole different focus on that passage now. Take the word predestined out and use laid claim, and it gives you a total di- totally different sense, totally different uh, direction. Uh, Hippocrates uh, also used it, I think, in about the 3rd century A.D., used it to describe the early diagnosis of a disease, like a prognosis. You go to the doctor and you get a prognosis, which is from the Greek word prognosko, meaning to know beforehand. And so it is a statement of this is what my prediction is as to what the course of this disease will be. Uh, Heliodorus used it in a romance novel in the 3rd century A.D. in Egypt, referring to the day that was set aside for a wedding day. So the basic idea seems to be in Praharidzo that as God plans ahead of time, he appoints or sets aside certain people for certain tasks and certain objectives. And that's very different from the idea that we normally think of of uh, predestin- predestination. Now, the related word haridzain or haridzo, depending on whether you want to use a 
um, infinitive or the first person singular. Horizon means to limit or to set a limit or to fix or to appoint something, to establish it. So the idea then, uh, prahorizon would be to establish it ahead of time. Like when you get down at the beginning of the day, and you want to establish your parameters, your plan for the day, and you're going to lay that out ahead of time. It's used that way in passages such as Luke uh, 22.22, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined or as it has been planned ahead of time or appointed ahead of time, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Acts 2.23 uses it in the same sense. Him being delivered by the, it's translated determined purpose of God, but we could say being delivered by the uh, previously appointed plan and foreknowledge of God. So God had a plan. Now, nobody has a problem thinking God has a plan. If God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, he certainly had a plan. He didn't just just throw a lot of stuff out there and hope that somehow it would all come together and have some meaning and significance. But every detail down to the minutest portion of the creation was perfectly designed in the most intricate detail. Acts 10.42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who has ordained, the New American Standard translates it, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So it's not, he did, it's the idea God appointed Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17.31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He set out a plan and he appointed and determined that certain things would be done in certain ways at certain times. In Romans 1.4, it's translated declared, sometimes designated. And he declared or designated. We wouldn't translate. He, predeter- he um, um, pre- predestined him to be the son of God with power. That's not the idea that's there in the text. So it's really important to understand predestination is not a good reflection of this Greek word. Sixth point is that the other word I mentioned, aphorizane, is used ten times in the New Testament with the idea of to separate. It's used in Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.15, Acts 13.2, passages of that nature to indicate God setting apart or separating something for a particular reason. In the Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which always has to be evaluated on a uh, somewhat cautious basis because of some of the stuff there. You'll often hear people refer to Kittle. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament is translated. It was originally written by one of the greatest, most brilliant uh, anti-Semitic pro-Nazi minds, theological minds in all of Germany. So you never heard that before. But Kittle, in the, in the, in the original German, Kittle lived during the period, the early half of the 20th century, he was pro-Nazi, and he had, from what I understand, real anti-Semitic diatribes throughout. And when Jeff Bromley translated into English, he cut all that stuff out. But most, a lot of the men that were used to write articles in, in that book probably weren't even believers, but they really were masters at doing language work. But because they're... They may not have even been believers. You always have to make sure you can validate your points 
from other sources before you make sure that, that you go with it. But the writer of the article on this word in um, TD, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that the core meaning of the word is God marking something off for his purpose or for his service. That's the main idea. It's not predestination. It is God in his plan defining and determining something within a specific role. So point eight, if we translate something along the lines of previously appointed, it's the best idea there that Acts 4.28, that they were to do whatever your power previously appointed to occur. God's plan was for the Messiah to be crucified. And as much as they went against God, nevertheless, God used it to to bring about his purpose in the crucifixion. God did not violate their volition. They freely chose to rebel against God and to crucify the Messiah. But that was exactly what God intended to happen. But he did not violate their volition. Under the ninth point, we know that God is a sovereign of the universe and has a plan for his creation that is consistent with his omniscient, because his omniscience is always the same. It never increases or decreases. So he always knows simultaneously and intuitively everything that's ever going to happen in all of eternity. He never learns anything new, never forgets anything, never, never has to refine any knowledge. He always knows everything perfectly. So when he establishes a plan for creation, it immediately includes everything, his plan's going to take into account everything that he knows could possibly take place. And so it will end up being a perfect plan. Passages in Isaiah 14, verses 24 and 27, talk about this plan. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have, as I have purposed, so it shall stand. God has a plan and a purpose in history. That doesn't mean there's no volition, but it means God has constructed history and so oversees histories to bring about his purpose. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand, there's that metaphor again for his power. His hand is stretched out. It's a picture of, of power and accomplishment. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Then in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, we have another uh, image of this, this planning and purpose. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there's no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. The end, the beginning, the middle, everything is in the immediate now in terms of God's knowledge. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel, that's, that word has the idea of, my, uh, of advice, or counsel, or my will, shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. Then we have passages like the one I mentioned earlier, Romans 8, 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, these he had previously appointed to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, see, when we think of it that way, it just means that as believers, you're appointed to a goal. God wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the destiny that he's established for believers. Is That's what his desire is, is for you to conform to the image of Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with determining who will go to hell and who will go to heaven. 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he previously appointed to this particular goal, these he called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then point 10, God's plan includes appointing specific people for specific tasks. You know, I could add two specific goals. Above all this appoint, above all this involves I misspelled that. This involves appointing the Lord Jesus Christ to the task of carrying out and fulfilling our salvation. So this is what, what they mean, that this is the, the paradox here, is that on the one hand, the, these rulers of the earth, representing uh, foreshadowing of those kings of the earth in Psalm 2-2, are gathered together, but what they accomplish is exactly what God had determined would be accomplished in terms of salvation, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 29, we come to the petition. This sets up, they've set up the rationale now for God to act a certain way, and now they're going to call upon God to act in this specific way. They say, and now, Lord... Take note of their threats. The there refers to Herod, Pilate, the rulers of Israel, the people of Israel who are in opposition. Take note of their threats. It's to observe. Actually, the uh, Greek word here has the idea of observing or paying attention to uh, their threats. And grant... Now, that's the first thing they ask, is take note of their threats, pay attention to their threats, observe their threats. Second is grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So the first request has to do with pay attention to their threats, and that has the idea, the implication, watch them, they're threatening us, protect us. Second, give us confidence so that we can do what you told us to do. So give us confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through thy name of thy holy servant Jesus, and that you validate what we're teaching by giving us power in terms of signs and wonders and miracles that you promised would validate the ministry. So the first thing that they're asking is for God to observe, for God to observe the threats. They're asking God to be aware of the fact that they're facing opposition and to deal with that opposition and to protect them while they carry out the ministry that God had commanded them. So God, they're they're calling upon him to watch what's going on around us. The second thing that they ask is that God would give them the ability to speak the word with confidence, with with boldness. And the Greek word here is uh, parousia, to speak with boldness or confidence so that they would do what God had said to do. See, the Lord Jesus Christ had commanded them in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So just think, think chronologically here. We've been in Acts since late last year, late 2010. So we've been spending quite a bit of time here. In terms of the calendar, 
Jesus was crucified in April. Pentecost occurs in probably early April or late March. Uh, Pentecost occurred that year in, you know, 50 days later, which would have been in late May. And that's Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, you have the incident of the healing. Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 all come blend together at one time. This is just a few days after, or maybe it could have been a month or two. We don't really know. But it was within a couple of months of the day of Pentecost. So sometime by the end of July, this event of healing the lame man outside the temple had taken place. And so that all of this, everything in Acts 3 and Acts 4 takes place within a two-day period of time. And so they're... They're not that far. Jesus told them right before he ascended, which is 10 days before Pentecost, so this would have been mid-May, he gave them this command in Acts 1-8 that the Holy Spirit's going to come, you'll receive power from him, and you are to be, that's a command, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is the events in the prayer meeting in chapter 4 takes place sometime probably from mid-June to mid-July. And Jesus just made this promise in mid-May. So it's like he's only been gone a month or six weeks. So this is fresh in their mind. We've got a mission to that the Holy Spirit's coming. That happened just a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago. And now we are to proclaim this message with confidence and boldness. But, you know, the, the, the bad guys are already... Uh, gathering the troops together against us, so we need to pray that God is going to protect us. And so their request is that God would give them the boldness, the confidence, the courage to speak the word, is, is you told us to do this, now you give us the strength, the power, the ability to do this and protect us from, uh, from the opposition. And then the third thing is that God would give them the power in terms of signs and wonders and miracles that would go forth as their credentials. And we know from Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 12 that signs and wonders were a sign of the apostle. They, they weren't something that everybody did, every Christian did. It was only the apostles because it was their credential. It, it validated their message that they could, that God was working, uh, that God was working through them. So their prayer is specifically related to these promises from the Old Testament and from the command that Jesus had given them just a few days earlier or a few weeks earlier in Acts 1.8. Now, God is going to respond to them in a very specific way, but before we get to get that, I want to address this issue of praying in the will of God. Sometimes we know that we can pray in the will of God. They know exactly what God's will is. God's will is for them to stand up against the rulers of the kings of the earth, and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what God told them to do. So they are specifically praying for God to give them the ability to fulfill what he has told them to do. That's, that's a great way to pray, is look at a problem, look at a situation, in terms of how does God say, I am to act and deal with this kind of a situation. And then pray that God will give you the wisdom, the ability, the skill, the insight to to do what you need to do, the boldness and the courage to do what you need to do in that circumstance. And that at the same time, God praying that God is going to deal with whatever the other uh, 
forces of opposition might be so that he deals with that so that you can clearly focus on your goal and your objective. You do your mission, let God accomplish, accomplish his mission. But a lot of times we don't have that kind of specificity. I can think of examples where we know that God's will is contrary to what we're praying for. For example, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, Bathsheba had become pregnant. David had been involved in this conspiracy to get uh, her husband Uriah killed so he would know that David had uh, seduced his wife. And then God is going to uh, discipline him. And God has already announced that part of that discipline would be that the child that is born from Bathsheba was going to die. And David knows that that's God's revealed will. But, but David continued to petition God to let the child live. That's a great example. David wasn't wrong in doing that. James says you have not because you ask not. There are numerous examples in Scripture where God has answered prayer and changed what appeared to be a specific course of action due to petition. So David uh, prayed, he fasted, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he petitioned God uh, daily until the child died. And when, and if you remember the story, when the child died, he went and took a shower and washed off all the all the uh, ashes and put on clean clothes. And and um, everybody said, well. When the child was dying, you, you look like a wreck. And now that the child's died, rather than falling apart, you went in and took a shower and got all cleaned up, and you're going forward. And David said, well, as long as the child was alive, there was a chance I could convince God to change his mind. But now that the child is gone, I can't, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him. And, and God's in charge. And so he was able to face the circumstances with a relaxed mental attitude at that particular time. So in that case, that was a case where he knew that the revealed will of God was something different, but he prayed for God to change, to change that. In other cases, we don't really know what to pray for. Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with... Now, I want to get this right, because most people misquote this and misunderstand it, so I'm just going to flip over to it and, and read it to you as the, as, the scripture, uh, as the Scripture specifically states it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. And here the idea is spiritual infirmities when we really don't know what we should pray for. As Paul goes on to say, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession, intercession for us. Now listen, with groanings. That's not our groanings. That's the Holy Spirit's groanings. They can't be uttered, which means you can't hear them. Some, some people in the charismatic movement think that's what they're doing when they're praying in tongues. No, this is inaudible from the Spirit to God. It can't be articulated. We don't know what it is, but all, what the passage is saying is that when we don't know what the specifics should be in terms of prayer, the Holy Spirit does, and he straightens out our muddied-up uh, prayer requests so that uh, it gets straightened out on the way to God. Another example of uh, the kind of general prayer that is the best we can offer is in Luke 18:13, 13, 
when Jesus tells a story about the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is standing off in arrogance looking at the tax collector saying, boy, thank God I'm not like him. And the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He knows how unworthy he is as opposed to the Pharisee. He's unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful, merciful to me, the sinner. He can't even go beyond that. All he wants is God's mercy. That's just a, sometimes that's the best we can do in a prayer because we just don't know or have any clue how we ought to, how we ought to pray. Paul has the same kind of prayer in Romans 1.10. Always in my prayer, making request, if perhaps by now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And when he wrote this, he, 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 he had tried to go to Rome several times. He still hadn't gotten there. He wasn't sure when he would get there, but he was convinced eventually God would get him there. But that's how we are. We just pray, Lord, if it's your will, hopefully someday I'll accomplish, accomplish this, but it's in your hands. So here, though, in Acts 4, they're praying for something that is specific, and it is in terms of what God, what the Lord Jesus Christ commanded them in Acts 1.8, and what God had promised in terms of Old Testament principles. Now, here's what happens. This is the answer to prayer. We have the asked, and here's the answered. Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Has that happened anywhere else? When did that happen? That happened in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. See, this is the same kind of thing. They're praying in terms of Acts 1.8, God, give us boldness and confidence in the midst of opposition. And so God answers their prayer. Suddenly, it, the place is shaken, just like what happened on the day of Pentecost, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've gone through the different words for filling here. This is not the word for filling that we have in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by means of the Spirit. Different, different Greek word, different preposition, different grammatical construction. Here it's, they were all full of the Holy Spirit. It's a genitive of content. And, and as I pointed out, when this Greek word verb pimplami is used, it is almost always followed by some kind of speech, some kind of speech event. It happens with uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, it happens with Peter in Acts, Acts 2, that you have pimplami, and then there's something spoken. This is not normative in any spiritual life, either the spiritual life under the dispensation of Israel with Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary, or our dispensation. It is a supernatural act of God. So they're all full of the Holy Spirit. And what's the result? See, they spoke. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Well, what was the prayer request? The prayer request back in verse 27, or excuse me, back in uh, verse 29, was that they would all speak your word with boldness. So here's the first answer to their prayer. Uh, they're getting an uh, God sends, uh, first. The, well, the first part of the answer is that God sends his spirit with this uh, just as Acts 1.8 had promised, the Spirit will come and give you power. So the first part of the answer is the place is shaken. The second part of the answer is that they're all uh, full of the Holy Spirit. And the third part of the answer is that they 
have confidence. They have the confidence uh, to witness, and they have the confidence to uh, go out into the community around them and to continue to explain the gospel, the truth about Jesus' resurrection, even though they know that the uh, powers of the Sanhedrin, the religious powers, are against them. So they have confidence uh, to witness. Now, see how this works itself out. In verse 32, we're told, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And this is just a, a way of saying they were unified. They were unified in their motive to serve God, and they were unified in their mission to fulfill the command that Jesus gave them in Acts 1.8, to take the gospel to those in Jerusalem. Now, we'll get to it later, but they, they have a little trouble getting out of Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria, and God's got to give them a little a little help to do that through some persecution. But at this point, they have, they're unified in terms of their motive and their mission. But it, th- there's a reality of expectation there. Remember when, when Peter is, has his, his day of Pentecost message, and I said there that there's a verse down in um, Acts 2.38 that's often used for a, a gospel verse, and it's not. Uh, when Peter said, repent for and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That that really related to the, the offer of the kingdom to the Jews, that, that the kingdom wouldn't come with all that God had promised with the Holy Spirit until they, until the Jews turn to Jesus. And that's going to come because there's going to be a internally motivated change of mind on their part. It's not going to be motivated by anybody forcing them, making them, you know, nobody can, you know, reach inside anybody and twist a knob or turn a dial or put external pressure on them to do this. This is going to happen eventually, just as it did with a few in the first century who are going to recognize uh, Jesus as a Messiah, and it will be, uh, it will be widespread. And then in his second sermon, in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, uh, Peter said, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come. Again, it's the offer of the kingdom, that uh, the kingdom won't come until uh, the Jewish people have turned to Christ. Now, that can't be forced. That's going to happen on God's timetable. It's, not gonna, it's nothing that can be forced by, by any actions on anybody's part. And, but yet, these first century, first decade, first year believers were so convinced that the times of refreshing were right around the corner, that they understood that when the kingdom came, that personal possessions and, and, and property rights were going to be all redefined in terms of the Mosaic law and in terms of the redistribution of the property designations to the, to the 12 tribes in Israel. And so property ownership to them was something that, well, you know, five, two, three, four, five years from now, Jesus is going to be back. The kingdom is going to come. Everything's going to be different. It doesn't matter what I own or what I don't own. So because of their uh, sense of the imminency of Christ's return and the coming of the kingdom, they recognize that, you know, it's not about me and my, my stuff. It's about the mission. And let's make the mission happen. And so it was something that was motivated internally by each individual. The church didn't say, well, everybody needs to do this. This isn't socialism. There, now, there are people today, there are idiot evangelicals on the left 
that try to go to this passage and say that this is socialism. This isn't socialism. Socialism is when the government taxes people to do things. But what you have in the scripture is the government is never condemned for not taxing the people enough so that the government could take care of the poor. The people are condemned throughout the Old Testament when they weren't taking care of the poor because it wasn't the government's responsibility to take care of the poor. It was the people's responsibility to take care of the poor. You know, I just loved it in one of the debates. I think it was the one in in, uh, Florida, the, the last debate. And somebody asked Ron Paul a question, and they said, well, if, if the government isn't doing all of this in terms of health care, who's going to do it? And Ron Paul, you know, he's usually a curmudgeon, and there's a lot of stuff about him I do not like at all. But Ron Paul's got a little institutional memory, and he said, well, it's like it was up until the government started doing it. The churches, the Christians, the individuals, the people of the land take care of the people of the land. And and these liberal secular status that we have today, they are so divorced from history, just kind of went, huh? How would that work? Well, just like it worked up until about uh, 30, 40 years ago, the reason it's Methodist Hospital is because that was run by the Methodist Church. The reason it was St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital is that was run by the Episcopal Church. I remember as a little boy going down to some of those, uh, to St. Joseph's, and you'd see the nuns walking through the aisles. The nurses were all nuns in their habits. The churches ran things. People ran things. We didn't rely on the government to do it. People did it. When the government takes it over, it takes ten times as much people and wastes a hundred times more money, and you get to a point where it all falls apart. Not only this, but you look at this example with with Steve Jobs who passed away this last week. How much government money was used to stimulate him so that he could provide how many jobs for how many people? Millions of people went to work because of his initiative, which didn't get established on the basis of $1 of taxpayer money. The government cannot create jobs. Oh, yeah, it can create jobs. It can go out and create a bureaucracy. But bureaucracy doesn't generate wealth. It just takes money from the citizenry. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is these people are so in love with the mission that Jesus has given them that their personal possessions are not significant to them. They're willing to sell them, give their money to the church so the mission can be accomplished because Jesus is coming back real soon. I mean, that was an immediate reality to them. So this isn't socialism. This is showing that each individual was to do it. Now, what happened is that some people, some people thought, well... You know, I, 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 want, I want all the praise that's, that some of these people are getting because they're selling everything, giving it to the church, but I really don't want to sell everything and give it to the church. I just want to sell everything, and I'm going to keep some of it, but tell everybody I'm giving it all to the church. So I get a lot of credit and a lot of praise, and the Holy Spirit, we'll get to that next chapter, the Holy Spirit killed them on the spot. Because the issue is genuine individual motivation. And if it isn't coming from the individual to motivate them to help other people, the government is a sad, sad substitute for the inner integrity and virtue of the citizenry. And the same is true of the church. So what we read in the end of the chapter, with great power, Notice this is the answer to the prayer. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, not because they had to, because they wanted to, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they, that is the apostles, distributed to each as everyone had need. This is not Marxism. This isn't socialism. It's not communism. It was all done voluntarily by these individuals in a small community because they thought Jesus was coming back any moment. And so and then we're told about Barnabas, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, and I cut off the end of that verse. That's in verse 36. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, cut off verse 37, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we'll pick up there next time. Father, we thank you for this time and your word tonight. We thank you that we can be encouraged to know you answer prayer. Prayer changes things, that we need to be more diligent, more conscientious, more focused in how we pray and what we pray for. And then we will see some remarkable ways in which you answer our prayer. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged tonight by your word, that God the Holy Spirit would take these things and help us to think them through clearly and see how to apply them in our lives, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.